the old English word worship, worth-ship, denotes that which we declare to be in word or deed something of great value and worth. Right from the word. We just finished a week in Guatemala and we ramping up to Guatemala we were following the Psalms of Ascent as the uh, Jewish sojourners would make their way toward feasts and holidays and sacred days in Jerusalem. They would prepare their hearts with the Psalms of Ascent. And the, the last of those Psalms is a Psalm that proclaims blessing on God. And, uh, and so, uh, so when you finish the Psalms of Ascent, there, are, there really are three Psalms in a row, 134, 135, and what is called the Great Hallel which, is, which means in Hebrew praise, the great praise psalm. Those three were sung, and the, the, the key words in those three psalms, 34, 35, and 36, is first of all, 34 is, is blessing, and 35, it's praise, and, and in the sense of prostrating oneself or bowing one's life. And then uh, 136, the great Hillel, the theme is thanksgiving and thankfulness. And, and, but we use the word worship and it really comes from that old English idea of what do we declare of, of value. And so what we are talking about today from the reading in Mark's uh, scripture, in Mark's passion narrative is from John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. So let's read the text uh, and, uh, and see if we can uh, learn something from this text today. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn there, or if you want to follow on the screen, then uh, the, the words will appear there. And now it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. And a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. And she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10, and then Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad 
and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I wanted you to see this beautiful um, act of worship in its context with what is on either side of that little story. Because Mark uses in his gospel a a rhetorical device. Um, It was used often in Greek writing of the time. It was called a crea, and it was like a frame that you would, you would paint a beautiful picture and you would frame it on each side with an antidote, with a story, with, you know, with something that would set it off and focus the attention on the beauty or the picture. And, and so uh, that, that rhetorical device is used again and again by Mark in his gospel to frame the, his picture of of Jesus. And the purpose of this kind of a device was to build a case, to, to make a, pers- a persuasive and convincing argument, if you will. So how is the story of this woman's extravagant worship framed? Look on both sides. Verse 1 and 2, hatred from the religious establishment. They are plotting to rid themselves of Jesus and they are looking for just the right time to be able to do it under stealth. In verse 11, the opportunity to present itself. Judas comes willing to sell him out and the price of betrayal we know now is 30 pieces of silver. Do you see the price tag? Do you see what we're talking about? Worship here. It's not new to Mark. This idea of, of, of recognizing who Christ is and his supreme value is, 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 uh, um, is inferred again and again and again with the use of these crayons, these framing kinds of stories through Mark's gospel. Perhaps you remember that right before Jesus enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, he encounters Bartimaeus. And here's Bartimaeus. He's, he's blind and he has spread his cloak out on the ground in front of him so that people can toss coins into his cloak. And, and Mark frames the story of Jesus' triumphal entry, his coronation, his entrance into Jerusalem with the story of how Bartimaeus just throws his cloak aside, money and all, and runs to Jesus and bows at Jesus' feet. And the next thing we see as Jesus enters in Jerusalem, everyone's taking off their, their coats and their cloaks and they're laying them in worship before before Jesus as he rides the donkey. Do you see? It's, he frames it so that we will see the coronation of, of Jesus. And then think about this on Monday. That was Sunday. On Monday, Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and he curses the fig tree. And what happens on Tuesday? Tuesday morning, they, they walk again beside the same fig tree, and it's mentioned again, this time the disciples notice that it is withered. You see, what, what, did, what did he just frame there? What happens on Monday when Jesus gets to the temple? He begins to turn over the tables of the money changers. 
They have made the temple, the worship of God, about, about exchanging money and selling product. They have Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that this period in the life of Israel was called the bazaars of Annas, who was high priest when it all started. They turned literally the temple into a, a flea market, a place of commerce. Do you see the price tag we're talking about? It was about money. And Jesus overturns the tables. And, he, and the fig tree becomes symbolic of the fruitlessness of, of their religion, their commercial lives, their, their business life, their, you know, their greed and, and, and avarice, their hypocrisy. And, and think about it. So Tuesday which Chad talked about last week, when they get into the temple again, the question is posed to Jesus, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Money comes up again. Do we pay taxes to Caesar? And what did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, unto God what is God's. You see, there. What Jesus is intimating there is that, that there, there is a difference in economies. There is, a, there is an economy of earth. There's a worldly economy. And then there's what? A heavenly economy. There are the economics of heaven. Very different. And Jesus says, sure, give Caesar what Caesar wants. But give God what he wants. What he is worth. Do you see? And it's framed there for us. It's framed by, by the, in this instance, the, the very last thing that happens in the temple that day. It's a strange little story. And it, it leaves me scratching my head sometimes when I, when I read it in this context. Because here's Jesus been embattled all day long with the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And the very last thing that happens in the temple as, he's, as he has finally sort of gone back into the hallway, into, the, into that, you know, that shaded hallway off of the, of the, uh, the court of the Gentiles where the, the offering plates are, if you will. And he notices this little woman who puts in, what, two leptons, two little tiny coins, the smallest Jewish minted coins there were. And he says to, he says to his disciples, guys, don't miss this. Don't get, admit this. She, she knows how to worship. He, he's framing everything for us. Do you see it? You see, the, 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 the story of this little woman and her two leptons is, is, is on one side. And on the other side, you have Mary who literally breaks the flask of of, of fine and pure perfume and pours it entirely out on Jesus. Do you see these two instances of worship in between? You've got all of this intrigue and all of this backroom plotting, all of, of the religious leadership and their hypocrisy. But you have a picture of pure worship and pure religion on either side. It's a very interesting, Mark's gospel is very interesting for that reason. I love it um, because of that. It, there's something else I love about Mark too. 
by the way, and, and I've said this before, his, his language is so rough, it's so raw, it's so uh, unusual in places. And let me just give you a for instance of that. You know, when, when Mary breaks the ointment on, and pours it on Jesus, they begin, they begin to have this rumbling in the room. Literally, he says, they, uh, they, uh, th- there were some of them in the room that became indignant. And the word literally means they thundered. It's like the idea of the rumbling when clouds but, you know, hit butt together. And they, they began to rumble. They began to thunder. Okay? Why was this ointment wasted? Now listen, verse 5, I love, I love this. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. They scolded her. Now literally, another translation says it this way. They began to murmur against her. Okay? And the Greek word there, I'll give you this one Greek word because I love it. It's embraomai. Embraomai. It's the combination of an M, you know, which gives, adds force to it. Uh, and brimaomai. A little used word for anger in the Greek. It's only found a, a several times in the, all of the New Testament. And literally the word comes from the idea of a, the snorting of a horse. The sound that a horse makes when it's not happy. And it snorts. You get the picture? Brimaomai, we get the word bray from it. It's like the braying of a donkey or the braying of a mule. In short, Mark is telling us that the disciples were acting like jackasses. That's really what he's saying. That the disciples began to kind of have this discussion, and they were acting like jackasses. See what you can learn in church? My wife says, I don't need to learn anything about that. My sweet wife says, I know all I need to know about making comments under my breath. Right, honey? Okay. But I love Mark for that. Okay. That being said, let's look at this text. And what I, I just want you to see that there are three things about worship that Mary um, so easily teaches us from the act that she does for Jesus. We know from the combination of the gospel accounts, and all four of the gospels have such a story of Jesus being anointed by a woman, but it is John's gospel who tells us who and identifies who that woman was. It was who? It was Mary, who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And you know the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, do you not? Um... They lived in Bethany. They were very close friends of Jesus. And Jesus often stayed with them when he was at the feast. And this is what he does. Every evening he goes back to Bethany. He leaves Jerusalem, goes back to Bethany. And it is now what would, you know, we would think would be Tuesday evening. But, but the Jewish day begins with sundown. So it's actually Wednesday. We're talking about Wednesday of the final week. And so, uh, so that evening, Jesus has been invited to the house of Simon the leper. And the, the accounts in the gospels tell us that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, also from Bethany, are there with Jesus and the disciples. And, and there is this beautiful picture in the gospel here of the church as the church should be, if you will.
If you just look in John's gospel in chapter 12 at the position of the various um, uh, attendees of the dinner, it tells us that where's Martha? She's out serving, isn't she? She's, um, she's out making full of fells and, and shwana and lamb stew and um, you know, cooking matzo bread or whatever it was. She's serving. She's out in the kitchen. And, but she's not complaining this time, is she? She's enjoying herself in service to her master. Where's Lazarus? Where's Lazarus? Where's uh, Simon who was the leper? He had been cleansed of his leprosy. Where's Lazarus who had been raised, who had been resurrected from, you know, in a sense, or resuscitated from the dead, I should say. Where, where are they? They're at the table with Jesus and with the disciples. They're in community. They're in fellowship. And then where's Mary? Mary enters the room and she begins to worship. And it's interesting that every time in the Gospels that you see Mary, she's always at the same, she's always at the same place. She's always at the feet of Jesus. The Gospels tell us that she began to anoint his head, but then that oil began to run down and she ends up at Jesus' feet, anointing his feet with oil and and prostrating herself before him in worship. And this is where we see her. And that's a beautiful picture of the church. Do you see that? In community, serving, worshiping, and where is Christ in the center of it all? It's a beautiful little picture. But I want to focus on what Mary does and just suggest to you three things about worship. And one of them is, what's the motivation for worship? What's the motivation? Secondly, what's the primary obstacle? What's the biggest obstacle? What gets in the way, way too often for us when it comes to worship? And thirdly, what's the goal? What is the goal of worship? The motivation is what? Let me suggest it's thanksgiving. It's thanksgiving. You're familiar with, um, with those uh, MasterCard commercials where uh, it, and they begin to line up uh, the various items that have been purchased uh, and the cost of, of all of those involved until finally at the end of the commercial they get to that, that statement that somehow um, is, uh, something happens or something that, that sort of connects all the dots and, and then the tagline is worth it. It was worth it, right? I, I had one of those worth it moments in Guatemala. And so I want to tell you a little bit about, um, about this couple. Um, uh, Maria taught Zoe and husband, uh, Francisco. And uh, so, so that you have a, a sense. How many of you, um, I actually met Patch Adams once. Do you all know who Patch Adams is? I met Patch Adams. you know where I met him? In the Obers Hospital in Guatemala. He and an entourage of clowns came through that hospital one day. And so I think about this often about, um, about the movie Patch Adams. If you remember, that's an old movie a long time ago. But there's a scene in that movie where, uh, where uh, all these interns are gathered around this wise doctor who's analyzing this woman's condition who's on a gurney. And Patch Adams just sort of inserts himself, kind of steps up and says, what's her name? 
What's her name? She has a name. And uh, it's a wonderful point in that, in, in a kind of a turning point in that movie when you begin to realize that Patch Adams is, is not just focused on the, the physical ailment, but on the person. And, and, uh, and, and I've taken my clues from that. I work really hard at getting to know the names of every patient and every family member that comes to the Obras during Guatemala week. And, and, uh, Therese and Ashlyn, some that have worked with me, know that I take copious notes and I take pictures of these people on triage day. And then I, those pictures for each day's surgery go underneath my surgical notes so I know what the surgery, who the doctor is. And I've got pictures of them and then I've got, I have notes about what they, you know, what they're wearing, anything that'll give me a clue so that when I see them in the hallway, I can call them by name. Or if I'm walking up to their bed after surgery, I can call them by name. And, and so my, my MasterCard moment, my worth it moment, came on Friday of, of the week. We had finished all the surgeries. We'd made rounds that, that uh, Friday morning. And, uh, and I had met this couple, uh, Maria Tot Zoy. Uh, she was indigenous. She was probably Kichi. Uh, she and her husband both. Uh, and they didn't speak real good Spanish. They spoke the indigenous, the Kichi language. Uh, and they, but they looked, they were darker skinned. They, uh, they were real short. I mean, Francisco couldn't have been more than about five foot three. Okay. And so, uh, so Friday comes, Deb and I are trying to relax. We had breakfast on the square. We walked over to Casa de Fe to finish some, some business to pay for some coffee that we'd purchased, uh, at Casa de Fe. And, and some of the families stay at Casa de Fe while they're Loved ones are in the hospital awaiting release from surgery. And so I'm sitting there in the office. And I'm about 40 feet from the, from the front door of Casa de Fe. And, 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 uh, and I don't have my notes. I don't have my, you know, my, my copious notes. Um, but, but I see just out of the corner of my eye, I see this, this little man walking up to the door, about to go out the entrance of the door. And he had this red baseball cap on. And it just clicked with me. That's Francisco. And so I said, Francisco. And he turned, and when he saw me, his face just lit up. And he, he was carrying these two bags of, like, of clothing and, and, and uh, food and whatever. And he just dropped them, and he just made a beeline for me. I mean, he just, I, I didn't move, I couldn't have moved three steps. And he was right there in front of me, and he wrapped his arms around me. And he said, I bet he said gracias. I mean, he couldn't speak a lot of Spanish, and I can't speak it either. But he said, but he must have said gracias eight or ten times as we just hugged, embraced. It was my worth it moment for the trip. You know, wow, I know why I come. <laughs> I know why I do this. Because he's worth it. And, and can you consider what Mary has gone through just two weeks prior um, Lazarus has been sick and he dies and he's four days in the grave and when Jesus finally shows up um, they're frustrated uh, Mary and Martha are frustrated because he didn't get there in time did he and there was already the smell you know, in the, the, they, they were reluctant. Mary and Martha didn't want Jesus to open the, reopen the tomb because it's, they said he, he already stinks, you know. And, and, and can I just tell you that when you meet some of these ladies, little old ladies, Maria was like 72 years old. 
when you meet um, some of these ladies, they have needed a hysterectomy for probably eight to 10 years. And they are normally, by the time we see them in surgery, they are what a condition called prolapsed. And one of the things that happens with it is there is, they stink. There is a stench that follows them around, these ladies. It's an embarrassment to them. It, you know, it really is. And, and, uh, and I think about this, that Mary has smelled the smell of death, has she not? And now, as she walks through the room, what does she see? She sees Lazarus in conversation with Jesus, laughing and sharing a meal with Jesus. Can you see, can you understand how thankful she might be? And her worship is, you know, get this, it's, it's not impulsive here. It was not an impulsive just, oh, I think I'll just go get that bottle of perfume. I, I don't think so, because she's at Simon the leper's house. She's, you know, she's at a, she has brought with her, you know, with intentionality, and she's waiting for her moment. But her heart is so full of gratitude when she thinks of everything that Christ has done for her and for her family. And she understands and knows who he is. And so it's motivated by gratitude. Now, what's the biggest obstacle? What's the biggest obstacle to our worship? Let's be honest. It's pride. It's simply pride, is it not? We become cold and calculating sometimes, and we want to be in control. And that's the picture of the disciples. And John tells us that Judas was sort of leading the pack in the objection to what Mary has done. But Mary comes to this realization that it's not about her. It's, it's really not about her. There's, there are two things that are moving in opposite directions at, at a, at simultaneously here in this story. Mary is becoming more and more conscious of Jesus, of who he is. She's heard him talk about what's ahead for him He stayed in her home. She's becoming acutely aware that of the power that Jesus has, but also somehow aware that there is something that hangs over him like a cloud. She's becoming more and more conscious and aware of Jesus, and she's becoming less and less self-conscious until at last her focus is totally on him. Do you see it? C.S. Lewis has said, humility, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. See, pride has to be abandoned in worship. Pride has to be overcome. Pride has to be set aside in order for us to worship like Mary worships. She breaks the neck of this alabaster cruise which contains pure nard perfume. That is, she destroys, you see, the container. Uh, There's no backing away now. She starts on his head and John tells us that she ends up at his feet and she lavishes it upon him. She is anointing his feet. The scholars will point out that uh, how unusual, how humiliating that position is for a Jew. I mean, you could be a Jewish slave. I, I mean, indebted because of you could not pay your debts. You could be, in, you could be sold as a slave. And, and, but if you were Jewish, 
There was one thing legally you could not be, you could not be required to do, and that is to wash feet. You could not force a Jewish slave to wash feet. And what did Mary just do? She just so totally forgot about herself. She got so focused on Jesus. She didn't care what anybody thought. And then there's another, there was another thing that, was, that would have been scandalous. She, she let her hair down, John tells us in his gospel, and she began to dry her, his feet with her hair. Do you get it? A woman didn't do that in public. But she doesn't care. She's not focused on herself. She doesn't care what others think of her. She's abandoned pride. She's dying to self. She's becoming less conscious of herself and more and more conscious and aware of Jesus. And then what's the goal? What's the goal of our worship? I would suggest to you from Mary's story, the goal is simply this, that nothing be held back. Nothing held back. She doesn't hold anything back. I used to talk about this story as if Mary had done something very extravagant to show her love. I now say she did something that would have been seemingly extravagant. Because when you think of what he gave her and what it cost him and what he was preparing to do to give himself up for her, that she might be forgiven, that she might be made whole as a child of God, that he would personally sacrifice himself for her and for you and for me. It doesn't seem so extravagant, does it? She pours out, the Gospels say, a whole pint of Nord. That would be 16 ounces. And the perfume of that totally filled the house. She pours it out. It's pure. 100%. And it's nard. It was, nard was a, a perfume that was made in the Himalayan mountains. On the, you realize, on the eastern side of India and imported. And, and the disciples are quick to note Judas being the first. That this would have cost at least or more than, in Mark's gospel, 300 denarii. And a denarii was, in that day, considered one day's wage. So if you take out Sabbaths, this was a full year's wage for a wage earner, for a family leader. Would amount to about, today, probably $35,000. Poured out at one time. But what's the goal of worship? Nothing held back. A.W. Tozier said, We must never rest until everything inside us worships God. And St. Augustine, the great writer, said a Christian should be an alleluia from his head to his foot. Nothing held back. And so she pours it out. And you hear the response of Judas and the disciples who join in with him. And then Jesus answers how? Leave her alone. She's done something very good for me. 
Guys, she gets it. She understands what I'm about to go through. She has anointed me beforehand for my own burial. And so every time the gospel is preached and everywhere the gospel is preached, this woman will be remembered for what she did. So let's just end with the gospel, can we? Remembering her as we go. Let's end with the gospel. Here's the gospel that it should be proclaimed to the whole wide world. Number one, the person who comes to an understanding and responds to Christ in a way to follow Him will first of all have smelled death. Will first of all have smelled death. The Bible says all of our righteousness, what? Is just like filthy rags. Even our righteousness to him stinks. So for you and I to come and understand the gospel, what it means to follow Christ, we understand first of all that because of, because of my sin and even all my attempts at righteousness fall short and we must first smell death and secondly abandon our pride. Realize that it's not all about me. that I began to realize that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I get my focus on Him. And then third, I bring myself, my total self to the altar. I bow my life before Him and I give everything I know of me to everything I know of Him. And I may not know it all, but that's where I start. Everything I know about me, I give to everything that I've learned and I know about him. That's the gospel. Jesus says, guys, Mary gets it. The motivation is thanksgiving. The obstacle that you guys are dealing with right there in that room with him is pride. It's pride. And the goal, nothing held back. Let's pray.